As the internet has grown, increasingly we are consumers of services provided by corporations, rather than owners and operators of our own systems. To many, this trend towards centralization is antithetical to the spirit of a free and open internet. Urbit is a new operating system and peer-to-peer network. There are several layers of novel ideas in this ambitious project. And in this episode, I interview Galen wolf Polly about Urbit, how he's using it, and how others are as well. Galen, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. So I know you've been on before, but for listeners who aren't necessarily aware of Urbit, I was wondering if you could give us just a high level. What is it? Sure. So... Since this is a somewhat technical audience, I'll give you, you know, I'll frame it in technical terms and then we can talk about it in different terms if you want to. But, you know, the idea is basically people should have a personal server of some kind. Most of our many listeners would probably set up their own Unix servers. It's a nightmare. It's super complicated. Unix is an ancient operating system. We can do amazing things with it in the realm of building web services. But when it comes to like doing personal computing, it's really, really hard to, you know, basically have a personal computer in the cloud of any kind. And so Urbit is a new software package that runs on top of any Unix machine with an internet connection that's designed to be a personal server. So something that an ordinary person can own and control and use day to day, but also a totally new software stack for people to build on top of where the idea being that, you know, you ship software to an individual they run it themselves. Everybody runs nodes on this totally decentralized network. It's a totally different model of you know, how we might compute in the cloud than using cloud services. So when you say personal server, what are some of the services that that encompasses? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, today we use Urbit basically as a communication tool. So to chat and share notes and links and stuff like that. I think that we have, you know, we have a lot of interest from people in the crypto space broadly because Urbit sort of overlaps with that world. So you could see this being useful for people who are trading, working as syndicates, uh, engaged in sort of personal commerce. So whether that's like as a creator, you know, selling things or, or whether you're like a host of a podcast or something. Uh, so replacing things like Patreon in that case, or tools like you know, most syndicates have some weird mashup of Signal Telegram, and they're using exchanges, and maybe they're using DEXs. So basically, social software, right? We have social networks, but we don't really have social software. We have to kind of cobble together SaaS to do that for us, if that makes sense. And you also described it as peer-to-peer. Can you expand on that? Sure, yeah. So Urbit is really two systems, technically. It's Urbit ID, which is basically like a PKI that's that's deployed on Ethereum. So you own a name that's in this name registry on Ethereum with a private key. Those names are these sort of short synthetic names. They're totally pseudonymous. You use that name by registering a key with it to boot a node, an Urbit OS node. Urbit OS is this totally virtualized piece of software that runs on top of any Unix machine. And when you boot it, you sort of announce yourself to other peer nodes and say, hey, like I'm online as this name and you can contact me at this IP address. So then when you want to communicate with other nodes, let's say you're starting a group to do something or you're you know, downloading software or whatever, 
you're always doing that point to point or person to person, you know, node to node. So there, while there are, you know, if I host a group and a hundred people join my group, I am basically the server for that group. So, but in general, you know, it's, it's peer to peer, meaning people connect directly. It's not like everyone goes to facebook.com and Facebook has the group basically as an entry in their database. And we all just connect to Facebook server in order to connect with one another. And what are some of the advantages of the peer-to-peer model for your use case? I'd say that Urbit broadly is concerned with control at the, that's sort of the main objective, right? Like when people are in charge of their computers, they can invent new things almost like casually. I feel like this was my experience growing up with, you know, PCs in the, in the, in the nineties, like, when your computing is local to you and you have all these different applications that you use on your own, you sort of invent new ways to do things and to solve problems. And so if you want to do that in the cloud, you know, peer-to-peer networking is almost just a consequence of, well, we want to let people, when they share data with each other, do it however they want to. You don't want there to be some intermediary deciding who gets to send what back and forth or how. I mean, I should give that with some caveat is that, you know, all networks do need some form of, of governance. If you look at, uh, you know, totally anonymous networks where addresses are free, they're often full of spam and abuse. And so Urbit IDs are finite. There are only so many of them and you have to get them from basically from someone who already has one. So there are basically 8-bit addresses that issue 16-bit addresses that issue 32-bit addresses. And that issuance hierarchy means that the while the network is decentralized in terms of when we talk to each other, it's sort of para-decentralized in terms of how it's issued, which keeps everybody accountable, meaning it costs me something to get an address, so I don't want to spam the network and then have people blacklist that address. And if I own a big block of addresses, I'm even more accountable, right? I don't want to be known as someone who's selling to sort of like bots and spammers. But anyway, so popping the stack... The idea is that, you know, when people, if you want to give people a tool that they can do whatever they want with and invent new ways to connect, communicate, and so on, you know, peer-to-peer networking is like, it's just completely obvious. It's the same reason that that network is encrypted, the same reason that you own the thing with a key. They're just sort of natural consequences of trying to make something that you control completely. Well, earliest computing days and when modems were just getting people online, we started out in a very decentralized way. There were systems like FidoNet and BBSs that people managed. And it seems that generally we've gotten progressively more and more centralized. A very few people run their own POP3 mail servers anymore. You go to a SaaS solution for your email. Is Urbit like a step in the you know 180? Is it a step to the left? How do you view it from this trend of centralization? Yeah, it's definitely, it's like a, it's a 180 <laughs> multi many times over. So the way I look at it, like centralization is the easiest way to scale a, you know, like a, a young internet company, you know, so, so most of the companies that we look at as being super centralized and sort of dominating the internet that we live on today, this kind of internet of apps and services you know, if you just look at the history of what happened there, they were running servers because it was the only way that they could build something and show it off to people. And people got so excited about the things that they were providing that they had to figure out some way to, you know, even more quickly ship updates, 
be even more reliable, so on and so forth. But the consequence of that process running over now, you know, 20, 25 years is that you just have this insanely industrialized software stack, right? So if I want to start working on a new project, I'm sort of NPM installing my way into something that is super complex and I can just never understand as an individual engineer. And so I think that that's, that kind of trend of industrial software is what has gotten us away from even the ability to compute directly with one another in the, it, like as it was in the era that you described, right? The early days of the internet, like you had these pretty compact and sort of simple systems sitting on people's desks that were cabled together. And it was just a much, you know, it's a much simpler software stack. Now we have this hugely, like this huge industrial scale software stack that provides us amazing quality of service, but it's really not that different than, you know, in the 70s, the computer center had a mainframe in it, gigantic industrial piece of equipment, provided amazing compute power, but and what and the early PCs, you know, couldn't really compete with that. But the fact that they were on your desk is what made them really exciting. So I think that there's always going to be something just like distinctly different and unique and I don't know, like just special about something that's yours and that's like that you can do whatever you want with. And so those, yeah, when you know the days of BBSs have this very unique spirit to them, I think, because people were in charge. You know, the people running the thing were actually, they also owned it. It belonged to them. And that's sort of where the magic of computing lies, at least to me. And so, yeah, Urbit is definitely, if we, we live in a very different world than that today. And Urbit is trying to solve that problem technically, with the thinking being, if you can solve that problem technically, then you can actually, you know, deliver a different quality of user experience. Well, I don't know if there's any such thing as an Urbit census or, or whatnot where you could get a measurement of the usership, but I'm curious if you see any patterns or personas emerging. Uh, why are people adopting Urbit? So, yeah, a lot of them, that's a good question. I mean, we should, so one thing that's worth quickly clarifying probably is that I think of Urbit, you know, Urbit is, think of Urbit like Unix, and then we've built this thing we call landscape that you think of kind of like a window manager, or maybe it's like, Urbit is like the internet and landscape is like Netflix or Netscape. (laughs) Landscape is nothing like Netflix. Uh, Meaning Urbit is a piece of software or is is, is a piece of infrastructure. And then there's, we build an interface for it. Landscape is primarily about, yeah, like I was saying, sort of, it's a simple communication tool. So a lot of the patterns I'm going to describe are kind of, you know, in that they live in that world. About a month ago, we shipped a major update to landscape where you can actually distribute software over Urbit that runs inside of Landscape. So we haven't yet seen emerge what I think we're most excited about, which is like when people and communities start building their own individual Urbit applications and tools and experiments. And I think that will move this in a different direction. But anyway, for the time being, I think, I mean, Landscape being this kind of, you know, think of it like a Discord alternative or like an alternative to sort of like, it's kind of the alternative. We built it basically like being a small community and a company that used Google Docs, Arena, or Pinterest, or whatever, and like message boards, as well as, as as a chat app, and trying to combine all those things. So that's kind of what Landscape does. What you see on there is communities kind of similar to, yeah, what I remember from the earliest days of the internet, these sort of like either communities that have a shared interest. So there's a bunch of music groups that are really fun and just weird and interesting there are people say like really enthusiastic about small computing, like building raspberry Pi based, you know, home Urbit rigs as an example. 
And then you have these communities that are more kind of creator focused. So it's like where a creator has maybe a public Patreon or something, and now you can pay them somehow to get access to a group that they run on Urbit, where everyone you know gets access pseudonymously to kind of connect with them more directly. As you kind of hinted at, we can't, since the network is decentralized, you know, we see the people who pass through the public channels that we run, um, but we don't, you know, there's no real telemetry. We don't, we can't track who's on the network. So these are just, this is sort of anecdotally what I see perusing the network myself. But actually most of what I use it for is to connect with the company and, and with the community more broadly. And for, and for that purpose, it feels very cozy. It's, it's really nice. It's, it's nice to use something that's not uh, constantly trying to get, there's, there's no like a landscape nitro. <laughs> there's no advertising. There's no, you know, upgrade. Uh, it feels just like a solid sort of, Someone once described Urbit to me as like, you know, when someone has like a tchotchke on their shelf and you pick it up and it's like a lot heavier than you expected it to be. I do. I feel like Urbit sort of has that quality. It's like, it just works. It's efficient. It's, it's like sort of stable. I think a lot of people are uh, just by popularity, or at least they'll be familiar with tools like Slack and of course, email and Microsoft Teams and maybe Jira. There, you know, it's an endless list of things people are using to work together in collaborative fashions. Can you compare and contrast some of those common solutions with what collaboration looks like using Urbit? Sure, yeah. So the most important thing to know is like Urbit, I last talked to you guys in 2015, I think, something like 2016. So for a long time, we were this tiny team. We we're about five people who were kind of crazy enough to think, okay, maybe we can you know, basically develop a totally different like almost like lineage of, of computing and, you know, build, building a new platform is just like a completely insane thing to, to do. And the first task was like, okay, can you make this platform even work well enough to build some very, very simple prototype applications? And I'd say by 2017, the prototypes were pretty nice and we were using Urbit a good amount ourselves. And so then over the course of 2018 and into 2019, we started to hone in on, okay, what do we really want to do with this thing? And then I think at the end of 2019, we started building what is now Landscape. So Landscape itself is definitely super immature as a product by comparison to any, you know, any, yeah, like Microsoft Teams or Slack or whatever. We're bigger now. We're about 25 people or so. And that happened in in 2018. So, so, you know, we're, we're like, able to build somewhat real software, but of course we also build the entire platform uh, that, that the thing runs on top of. That's not entirely true. There's, it's, you know, Urbit is open source and there's a community contributing, but just so you have a good baseline of what, we're not Microsoft, we're not Slack. But yeah, we did build it just to cover our own use case of like, how do we keep the team connected? And we're people who really like calm, straightforward, you know, very purpose-built software. So in Landscape, you can create a group and that group shares channels and a channel can be either a chat, a notebook, which is just a collection of like basically blog posts with comments, or it can be a collection of links in the spirit of say Arena or Pinterest. So feature-wise, we're like a little bit different than any of the sort of chat-focused communication platforms. And, and I think that's our kind of main like differentiator that's probably like a an advantage. Like most of these things are totally chat-focused. But in terms of just overall maturity, you know, like there's no, we're still mobile web, there's no mobile app. The onboarding is definitely like pretty tough. It's still rough. That's the area that I think we can improve on a lot. And I think we will. 
this is not a super mature product that's ready for your giant company. And I think that's, but it, it is, however, I think pretty good for like your little group of friends that are, were otherwise spread between whatever discord and Slack and notion and whatever else. So that's more the use case that we see popping up. This is also somewhat true of, and there are a few kind of crypto focused companies uh, using Urbit. I think because it appeals just in terms of like the level of ownership and control that people have. A lot of these companies are also experimenting with like using Urbit as infrastructure. So building software for Urbit or experimenting with using Urbit as kind of like a backend for moving transactions around and stuff like that. So Urbit is a platform. Can you describe some of the opportunities for a developer to maybe start a business or at least some sort of popular project on top of it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's... I can talk about actually a few things that people are working on presently that may be a sort of jumping off point. And the other thing that's interesting is that it's a platform where you know the design of this address space that is finite, the idea there is that in contrast to the internet, right, where an IP address is not a piece of personal property, in this case, address space is property. And the idea is that that property, the value of that property should be used to fund development of the platform. So we also pour a lot of address space as a resource into funding just general platform development, meaning we basically pay core developers um, to, to help us you know, mature the runtime, contribute to the kernel, and so on. So we'll start with the former case, and I could talk a little bit about kind of like the grants program. One of the things that's been interesting to watch over the last nine months or so is we had a group of employees. So, so we work, I'm the, I'm in charge of a company called Talon. We're sort of like the core developer, but there, but Urbit, of course, yeah, is a, is open source and is run by a community. There's even a foundation that supports community development as of about a month ago. And so about nine months or almost a year ago, a, a group of Talon employees who were really, really excited about payments and payments over Urbit, and I do think there's some interesting ways in which people can do business over Urbit, left to start a company that is now working specifically on building payment rails for Urbit. So both building interfaces for people to deliver content to their sort of listeners or viewers or readers, and then ways for those that audience to you know pay the creator, basically just sort of, yeah, the Patreon replacement. And so in their case, they're I think ultimately going to try and sell sort of subscription-based software. So they ship an app where you can go and download it from them over Urbit itself. And then you pay some fee back to them uh, to actually use their service and to use their, their payment rails. This is definitely just emerging, but I'm so happy to see it happening because I've always felt like, you know, the interesting thing about Urbit as a platform to ship software to, in contrast to the internet, is if I'm a developer of an application on Urbit, I basically need to ship you. It's more similar maybe to like a iOS model or something where I need to have something online where you can get the app itself. And once you've, that's sort of like a single transfer, right? I send you the payload of that application and then you run it yourself on your Urbit node. But the way that people should be able to make money there is by actually, you know, selling that as either a one-off, like you would buy an app or through some form of subscription at this point, most people are doing it for fun, but I'd imagine that in the next year or two years, like those models will start to get pioneered. And a lot of the people excited about figuring out how that should work are super active, like within the urban community. And those who are not, I think, specifically interested in building, yeah, at the application layer, you know, yeah, the system itself being this kind of alternate reality world of computing 
is a ton of fun to contribute to if you're like a serious systems person. And we commit quite a lot of address space to, to funding those people. So some of that may happen within this sort of little operating environment, which is like a file system, a networking protocol, a build system, application sandbox, and so on, all of which runs, you know, uh, in its own programming language that compiles to its own machine language or its own sort of virtual machine language. So there's a lot of work to do across that stack. And there's also a lot of work to do within the interpreter. So this thing is, you know, is run by, has its own runtime and its own, its own little virtual machine that's written in C. And we have apprenticeships, grants, and, and often accept proposals where we commit address space to people who, who want to help mature the system in, in different ways and, and even potentially like do research into ways to make it faster or more efficient that, that aren't that are they're totally open-ended, you know, we're exploring new things. So yeah, there's lots of different ways to get involved. And one of the fun things about landscape itself and, and which I always find kind of validating is that a lot of the discussion around how to do all those things who to talk to, what to work on, basically all goes on within Urbit itself these days. So even if you're just kind of curious, you can you can join the network and check it out. You described that if I were an application developer, I could distribute via Urbit and you'd be running my software on your node if you know we came up with a deal where I was giving you the software. What's the model for distributing updates to software if um, I've given you the source code and you're running it? Yeah, good question. So we update the entire system, including the programming language over the network. And the reason that we can do that is because the virtual machine spec, which we call NOC, it basically never changes. It's like 13 opcodes. It's super concise. It's basically just this little Turing complete definition of computing. So your Urbit at any given point is just a like, you know, it's sort of a pure function of its event log, right? So your Urbit receives events keyboard messages, network messages, whatever it might be. And then on each event, it computes some new output, some new state. And so some update could be, hey, here's an update to the entire operating system. Run that against your existing state. Of course, your existing state contains the current version of the OS. And then you know output a new state, which is your updated Urbit. So one of the affordances of the file system is to be able to, it's kind of like reactive Git, right? So instead of saying, hey, uh, clone this repository and send me all the diffs or, you know, yeah, pull down the difference. You can just say, hey, listen to this endpoint that could be somewhere out on the network and send me all the updates as they come in. So if you're a developer, you basically just have a directory where your application is that, you know, is the sort of prod version of your application and assume you have some that you develop on. You develop updates. When you're ready to do a release, just move the code over into that production version. And anybody who's subscribed to that, what we call a desk, which is basically a branch, should just automatically get an update over the network. We regularly do this to update, yeah, like the whole system, as I was saying, which could be all the way down to the language. Uh, updating a language can sometimes be tricky and has to be done carefully. So kernel updates, you know, you, ha you have to be a little bit more careful about, although in general, you know, Urbit is pretty robust. Like the whole thing is basically a database uh, and, and also acts like a single level store. So we don't really have a distinction between, you know, writing to disk or running in memory. The whole thing runs in memory. So yeah, it's a kind of a different model. You're not like, a, you know, when someone, I guess like uh, the closest thing really is like phone, is things on your phone, right? Like I download an app and I can just say, okay, automatically update it. It's probably a lot more like that. We don't have the equivalent of that when it comes to websites. I mean, even with a site, if you're a developer and you shift an update, you need to force everybody to refresh if it's like a single page app. So it's a little bit different than that. 
You'd mentioned giving out address space as sort of a reward or an incentive in certain cases. Could you elaborate on why people want that? Can they sell it? To whom do they sell it? And uh, how do people leverage the address space? So let's maybe start at the top. There are 256 or yeah, like two to the eighth galaxies, each of which issue 256 stars, making for a total of about 65,000 or two to the 16th. And then each star issues 65,000 planets, making for a total of about 4 billion. So you can think of the galaxies as basically like governance nodes. So a majority of the galaxies can vote to upgrade those contracts that govern the whole address space. A star is sort of like your local ISP. That's where if you're a planet, you you sort of by default get software updates or like kernel updates from. Um, and you imagine that stars could also sell services. So now there are people operating Bitcoin nodes as bolt-on affordance to Orbit itself. And that usually happens at the star level. And then planets are kind of like individual nodes for personal use. They're like somewhere between, I mean, it's for individuals, right? A planet name is like a domain name and a, and a handle rolled into one, but it's also a network address I can send packets to. Uh, planets also issue moons. You imagine that moons are for devices. So planets and stars can change parents. They don't have to stay fixed in the hierarchy. And then moons cannot. Be, uh, you, that's why you, know, you don't want that many uh, addresses kind of running around the network. Uh, 4 billion times 4 billion is a, is a big a big number. So address space is not that big, right? That's about the size of IPv4. Um, people are always concerned that it's not as, uh, as big as the population of the Earth, which is a valid concern in about 10 years or more. <laughs> the address space could potentially be expanded by a quorum of the galaxies, but for the time being, it's probably roughly actually the number of people who are online today. And the thinking being that like I was saying before, right, if a, for any finite asset, a finite asset generally has some value. So ideally, a planet just costs more than you would make spamming the network with it. And the star of a star, of course, and I, so I think that's kind of the baseline value of the address space, basically, what would someone pay for a planet to use this system? And then, of course, in turn, the question is, well, like, why is the system use like worth paying for at all? And that, I think, boils down to its day-to-day -day usability, which is why we care about making things that people actually use from day-to-day. -day. So assuming that someone, you know, will pay five bucks for a planet, and there are quite a lot of people who will pay for, the plan for a planet at that price, then the network is, in turn, pretty valuable. And, you know, we're not quite there yet. That's, a, that's an insane valuation. But... One of our primary concerns as Urbit gets more and more useful is basically how can you distribute address space to people who can make significant contributions to the system itself in a variety of different ways. Could be at the application layer, inventing new stuff to do, could be at the kernel layer, making things faster, more efficient. And as you spread address space to them, not only does it have some actual financial value today, because these things are, they're all basically NFTs. I think we were like the fifth person to use the ERC721 standard when we actually did this, but now everyone knows what an NFT is. So they do trade and they are a live cryptographic asset. But the thing that's exciting to me about it is our ability to basically give developers, people who, and creative people generally, you know, kind of material stake in a, in a network that they can also contribute back to. So you can leverage some of that value and, and sell even part of that asset as of late, there's the community developed a way for you to sort of fractionalize these things. So you can even sell a part of it and fund your ability to you know, continue working on or contributing to the network um, in some material fashion. 
So there's sort of like a feedback loop of Urbit gets more useful and therefore it gets more valuable and the developers can leverage that value to continue making it more useful, which I, I think is a, I mean, ideally is a virtuous feedback loop. My hope is that people don't simply get lazy and sort of sit on that value, but I'm pretty excited to work on this thing every day. So I think it's, I think it's working okay so far. What are some of the current active projects or recent releases? There's so much going on. Uh, it's hard for me to... I realized the other day that I've actually just completely lost track of, of all the things that people are working on. I mean, we are sort of in this process of continually updating landscape. And then, like I mentioned before, the software distribution stuff is probably the most exciting thing we shipped um, that we worked really hard on last year. So now I can basically just send you a link within Urbit and you can click that link and it will just download a piece of software for me and, and uh, install it and you can run it right away. And so people have been experimenting with all kinds of stuff. There's almost every day I see something new that I hadn't seen before. And most of them are total toys. You know, it's like chess. We're, there was a file system explorer that was actually pretty amazing the other day. Oh, someone made a actual like 2FA, so so like self-hosted two-factor auth that actually uses your camera to go and scan QR codes and generate generate 2FA codes, which is really cool. And but these are just people sort of like, you know, moving quickly experimenting. So your Urbit has to run somewhere and we as Talon have worked on a hosting service that we've been improving so quietly over the past year or so. There are now three or four other hosting projects. I think two of which are real actual companies that can actually host you, which is so exciting to see because that's really important to getting people on the network. There are a few bigger infrastructure projects. I think neither of them, there are two, both of which I think did their entire fundraising and it brought in their initial teams over Urbit itself. But I don't think either one of them, like which I really want to talk about because I'm excited about them, but I don't think either one of them is public or wants to be publicly known yet. So I can't get into it, but I suppose that's a good teaser for like some of that information is kind of kicking around the network. Those are the things that come to mind. We hosted a conference about a month ago in Austin, which was pretty impressive, like to me, certainly. And and so ever since then, I've had this kind of feeling of like, I don't even know what's going on anymore, because my feeling at the conference was that people were sort of constantly coming up to me, telling me about things that they were working on that were urbit centric than I had never met them before or seen them before. And it felt six, nine months ago, like the community was something I had a good handle on. I kind of knew what was going on. But at this point, um, I can't I can't really keep up with it. You'd mentioned the address space being roughly about the size of the, you know, total population of human beings. Is that, um, do you have a vision that essentially all people online will eventually have their own personal server? Is that truly the goal of the project? Yeah, so the the, um, the address space is about half the size of the population of the planet. It's about four billion, and I'm pretty sure we're at like seven or eight, seven and change or so. That isn't too difficult to change if we do, in fact, approach a, a world in which everybody has a personal server. Yeah, I do. I honestly think that's reasonably inevitable. I, I think it's very clear that networked computing is like a extension of the way that we think. I think that's the, you know, that that's the kind of maybe optimistic take on what is exciting about the internet in general, you know, ignoring some of the pain points of centralization. It's kind of amazing that the whole world is connected as easily as it is connected. And we, and network computers are this 
sort of accelerant for how we form communities and think about both ourselves and the world around us. I don't think that it, it wouldn't make sense or it would be historically atypical for something that is that important for this number of people to be controlled by a very small population. Like if you look at the way that, you know, cities are built or the way that even like empires are distributed across physical territory, um, there's a lot of distribution of ownership. The people who live in a particular place, and I mean like historically, kind of have a very direct material relationship with the buildings around them, the people who run that city or that province or whatever. And the internet, I think, or, or sort of like whatever the internet becomes needs to evolve or not even needs to, like we'll just naturally evolve in that direction. And I don't think there's any way that that's going to happen with the technology that we have. Uh, whether or not that's urban, I'm not really sure, but certainly we build with that future in mind. You know, like, yeah, when we talk about this thing as an operating system, I mean, look, it's an overlay OS. It doesn't run on metal, but the idea is that, yes, day-to-day people should live inside of, you know, inside of their own personal server and and be able to sort of compute freely because I think that's what people want to do. And for a developer that's thinking about starting a new project, what are the key features that are going to pull them into Urbit being the platform upon which they want to build? Yeah, great question. Uh, this is a question we didn't historically have great answers to, and, and I think these answers will continue to get better, but they are improving. So if you're a developer today and you want to build an application using the legacy stack, you are in charge of basically DevOps, right? You have to not only make decisions about what stack are you going to use, but you have to keep that entire, you know, sort of, I think of it, it really looks like a, you know, it's like a really, really tall tower of wooden blocks, like which as I'm imagining it, it's like just scary a little, it like makes you a little uneasy to think about because if you, you know, step the wrong way in the room or whatever, the whole thing can come crashing down. I think most developers are familiar with this and obviously like the industrial sort of software stack has gotten better, but it tends to be that if you want to build a conventional app, you just have to compose a whole lot of software that you didn't write and you don't understand, and it's generally difficult to manage. The Urbit alternative is saying, look, the problems of identity and authentication, data storage and networking, how your application business logic is structured and how you do updates, we solve all of that. That's just part of the stack. So we take that entire stack and we just make it into one thing. Everybody runs the same thing, and you should focus on basically user experience and sort of like what, what actual, you know, value does your application provide to the user? So the developer experience of Urbit, I mean, as a designer, like someone who cares about stuff, I at once am like, this is so immature. This could be so much better. It's like, we have so much work to do. And then on the other hand, I'm like, this is amazing. This is so much better than the alternative because it lets people very quickly experiment with making things in a way that you just can't uh, in, in legacy systems because you're sort of burdened by the tools and their, and their sort of overall complexity or just the fact that they're very sort of industrial scale. So I think that the Urbit model of sort of like you have this very thick stack and you let a developer just focus on the sort of business logic and user experience of, of what they're trying to provide. And then furthermore, they never run a server. So when you ship that software, I mean, sure, you have to have a node online somewhere, but you're not actually dealing with storing user data, which of course also has its own like liability issues and so on. It's just a much, much easier experience. 
I sometimes joke that like, you know, your best case outcome of like running, of building a SaaS app is like you get to testify in front of Congress. Like it's like, that's no longer the case in, in, in an urban world. Can you talk more about the cloud opportunity? If I wanted to, you know, I was a little timid about maybe downloading and running this on a, my own Unix server. Can I get some sort of a cloud version of it? And are there any advantages in having that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Urbit is pretty friendly now. I think it even, I should know this. And I don't even have to say, I think like Urbit runs on Windows, Linux, Mac, whatever. Uh, obviously won't run on iOS because it's a virtual machine. I think our desktop GUI does that too. So you can just tr- trying Urbit out with what we call a comet, which is like an anonymous identity is quite, quite easy to do on just about any platform, but they're ephemeral. And yeah, the whole idea is that you can access your Urbit from anywhere. So what most people did for a long time was just, you know, get yourself a DigitalOcean droplet or a Amazon box, whatever. You can get a very cheap VPS and, and just install Urbit in the command line, which is also, I think we've gotten the installation. I had to do it the other day. It was pretty, I think it's like two lines in the command line. We Pretty much everything's bundled. You can, if, you, if you're not going to build from source, you just, you know, curl a binary or whatever, W get a binary and you're up. We also, though, yeah, we have been working on hosting infrastructure, which is more of like a turnkey, so I can invite a friend who doesn't care about the command line and have them just get set up in a browser and download an app. Um, still working on that. You can get on the wait list at talon.io, and we're sort of slowly inviting friends in and testing it out. But yeah, if you're just, if you do get, you know, sort of start to go down the rabbit hole, I do recommend having a node in the cloud somewhere. You know, I, I do use Urban on my phone uh, pretty regularly. It's, it's, it's nice to be able to access it from anywhere. What's the phone experience like? Are you running the actual virtual machine or connecting it to it through an app or how does that work? Right now I'm day-to-day just doing it mobile web. So just over HTTP. People have someone at one point, the thing I loved was they got a, an e-ink Android phone and actually installed Urbit natively. So you can run it on Android devices. And then we've been working on an iOS app, but that's all happening. So that's like Swift, but speaking to Urbit over HTTP. So another, you know, you you can... If you're purely a front-end dev, you can kind of treat Urbit like a personal Firebase plus networking, you know, like it's just a backend where you're pushing and pulling data from it. And you could use your own, you know, whatever it might be as an interface framework to just talk to it directly. But anyway, yeah, the phone is just a HTTP client. It's just in a browser. It's easy to see us or like people have experimented with, and I think we'll eventually put out an iOS app, but you could see, you know, building interfaces in other, in other like UI frameworks. Where do you see the project going in the next five years? I do think it's kind of like time for better communication tooling. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the, I feel like probably the next like year, 18 months, two years, there's a lot of ways in which sort of landscape groups can get more powerful and more exciting just for, I think this pattern of like, you have a few friends who are, you know, assembled around a particular idea or, I don't know, like a sports team or whatever, you know, building computers in a certain way, being outside together, whatever it is. Doing that in a group chat just isn't really exactly quite what people are looking for. And so I'm excited to make Landscape a sort of really great tool for that. That feels like it can last a really long time, that it's very sort of stable and, and, and secure. And I think that that's sort of the first step towards what I really hope, which is that landscape can become sort of like a totally general purpose, you know, uh, operating environment for people in the spirit of the early PCOSs, right? Like what we don't have 
for not only do we not have a platform for personal cloud computing, which maybe Urban is starting to fill, but we, we really don't have as a way that all of our applications can work together, right? So right now I have a bunch of browser tabs. It's pretty rudimentary in terms of user experience. So if Urbit is you know, mature enough, well, okay, now I can have a bunch of browser tabs that actually share identity, share data, can pass messages back and forth. And, but what you really want is kind of like a holistic environment where these things can live together. And so I think that's the sort of five-year challenge is like, can you make Landscape a fully featured, you know, kind of like user experience where I can run multiple apps together in this very stripped down, you know, non-advertising centric way. The very loose way I've been describing this is sort of like WeChat, if it was like designed by IKEA, you want this sort of like digital basics OS feel. So I think that's where, and I, and I'm, I sort of, I like this idea a lot and I think it has legs. I think it will take us time to get there and we'll kind of get there step by step by building individual applications and experiences that we really like and, and sort of folding the community into that process. Well, where is the best place online that people can follow the project? It's easy to find us at urbit.org and kind of all the resources are there. We don't really use conventional social media, but there's we do have a Twitter, which is not the most informative thing in the world, but it is a way to get some updates. Either of those are probably pretty good. Urbit.org really contains everything, sort of find, find the right resource. We do put out, the, I feel like the newsletter is probably a great thing if you just kind of want to passively follow along. The newsletter that you can sign up for on urbit.org is where we kind of push periodic updates and is a good way to sort of just see what we're up to. And it'll, But if you want to go deeper, yeah, urbit.org also has resources for you to get set up, check things out more deeply and potentially you know, get involved in grants, whatever. Very cool. We'll have a link in the show notes. Galen, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back.